Good morning. <clears throat> there was a recent news article from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that a man uh, kicked a woman. Uh, supposedly, the woman was a drug abuser out cold. So the man kicked this woman, and she was unconscious. She laid unconscious. And uh, four to five bystanders saw this incident happen, and rather than calling 911 or asking the woman how she is, they take out their cell phone, and they start recording the incident. And then one of the bystanders actually leaves the scene, comes back, and takes a selfie with the unconscious woman. And I think that feeling that you have in your gut should should cry out injustice. And uh, the news reporter uh, uh, of this article was saying that uh, comments about if this was an animal, everybody would care. But this gut-wrenching feeling that you have addresses why should we regard man? And that's where today's passage answers that question. Why should we regard man? And today's passage, Psalm 8, calls us to rejoice in God and to have regard for man. So this passage calls us to rejoice in God and to have regard for man. I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 8. It's found in page 450 in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. So, Hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. So this psalm is clearly a psalm of praise, and you see that in the superscription uh, above verse 1, you know, to the choir master, uh, according to the Giddith. And the Giddith is, uh, some scholars think it's a song or a tune or an instrument. Frankly, we don't fully know, but we do know that this is a psalm of praise. Uh, and it's a, a psalm that's written by David, a psalm of David. And he begins this psalm with uh, an address to God. Uh, o Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And the natural question we should be thinking is, whose name is majestic? And David helps us understand this. Look with me in verse 1. Uh, he, he says, he addresses, O Lord, our Lord. So, O Lord, and if you look there with me, it's capital L-O-R-D, our capital L, lowercase O-R-D. 
what, what, what's the difference here? So I, I, before we unpack that, I want to give kind of a human example. David is not saying God, God, like he would say Paul, Paul, or John, John, or David, David. So he's not repeating uh, the same name. It's more like in the human example, Alexander the Great. Attila the Hun, King Richard the Lionheart. It's a name and a title. So the capital L-O-R-D denotes Yahweh. It's Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, meaning the covenant-keeping God, the creator God, the one who created man, right relationship with him, the one who his steadfast love endures forever. The one who cares for man is the covenant-keeping God. And then the second Lord, L-O-R-D, uh, lowercase o-r-d, it denotes uh, kingship and rulership. So it's a title. So if we unpack that and summarize that, it's Yahweh, our king or ruler. And this is so significant because you have God's uh, depiction of him as covenant-keeping and creator and his authority and rulership over all that is he creates. Uh, so his name, how majestic is your name, how excellent is God's name in all the earth, that's what we should be thinking, his create creatorship, his authority, and his rule that is controlling over everything, his power, his goodness, his mercy, his glory, that God's rule and reign is perfect over all that he rules. Uh, in verse, uh, uh, the second half of verse one, it's this glory above the heavens and the earth in, in the first half, right? So it's this totality that God rules over everything. And we'll see that unpacked in verse two and three. Uh, so look at verse two with me. God's majesty, his excellence. And he kind of changes, uh, the, the tone a little bit. He, he brings and introduces out of the mouth of babies, and infants. Uh, it, it's a, to be honest, it's a little bit tricky what's going on in uh, the logic of what David's doing. But uh, I'm going to go with what's clear first, and then uh, kind of backtrack. So what is clear, if you look at verse two, it's you have established strength in that middle section. So God, you have established strength. Uh, what's the purpose? Because of your foes to still the enemy and avengers. And enemy and avengers in this context is actually anybody opposing God. And I hope actually this addresses that God is using the weak man, weakness of man, babies, infants, dependent creatures, to establish praise, strength of God. So God in his glory could do whatever he wants to still the enemy. He, he, he And in the New Testament, he actually talks about the living stones praise God. But God so chooses to use weak creatures like babies and infants. And that, that should amaze us. So uh, verse 1 and verse 2, the transition is actually, God, you are so glorious, but you would use man to, to pre- give you praise? And, and David is a little bit confused, but I think... Um, uh, the New Testament passage that quotes this verse uh, helps us understand that a little bit better. So uh, we look at Matthew 21, verse 16. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 21, 
we're going to see a little bit clearer what this verse kind of means and how we should understand it. So Matthew chapter 21, verse 16. Uh, in this uh, passage, we see uh, Jesus, he's entering Jerusalem. He's going to the cross to die on the cross. Um, and it's this scene in the temple where uh, Jesus heals um, people. And then children are praising Jesus, Hosanna, to the son of David. That's kind of the context. So let me read that for us here in verse 16. Uh, Actually, I'm going to read from 15 and then until 16. So Matthew 21, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, Jesus, uh, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And so Jesus, how he uses this passage in Psalm 8 verse 2, is it's a rebuke against the scribes. So the scribes are saying to Jesus, "What you're letting these children praise, God, praise Jesus? No, 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 no. We, the praise should go to God. Uh, and Jesus actually rebukes them and says, no, what they're saying is right. Um, Jesus is God. Um, and he, and Jesus silent, are these children, they're silencing the enemies, the, the ones opposing God. Uh, and so God chooses to praise himself through these children in verse, uh, in, in Matthew 21. So when we go back to, uh, uh Psalm 8 verse 2, chapter 8 verse 2, we really see that God is using the weakness of man to establish praise for himself. The weakness of man to establish praise for himself. And I think we're going to see that transition when we go to verse 3. So look there with me. And David, uh, as he's transitioning, he's looking at the heavens. And he's not just looking at the heavens. It's your heavens, God. Your creation. The work of your fingers. The moon and the stars which God you have set in place. It's almost like he's reflecting on God's glory and creation. And he's astounded at what is going on here that God, you would choose to have man give you praise when the stars, the moon, the galaxies are so wonderful. Uh, you know, it's almost like a God is a designer or an artist and he's painting a, a picture of the moon and stars as, you know, just his painting and his picture is setting a star here, a star there, a moon here, the galaxies, supernovas, and it just reveals and displays the glory of the artist. And that's what's going on in here. And God, as he's sustaining the heavens, David himself is astounded at that. Uh, so in terms of application, how is your rejoicing and marveling at God? So practically, do you recognize that all of creation reflects the creator. So imagine uh, you're in Hawaii or imagine the most beautiful place that you've been to. You ought not to rejoice in the mere fact that it's beautiful. What we ought to do in this text, what it addresses us, is that we should rejoice in the God who created the beautiful place, the moon, the stars. And, and just think about where, where you've been, you know, for a minute. Uh, 
and just imagine the place that you've been to that's so beautiful and just remember and recall that that is the glory of God. So I hope you guys, the next time you guys go to a vacation or go to a beautiful place or you see the mountains, the stars, that you would rejoice, not in just the coolness of the creation, but in the creator of the creation. So let us rejoice and be wowed by God in creation. And, and uh, secondly, um, this passage calls us to regard for man. So verse 1 to 3, we see that this passage calls us to rejoice in God. The second point here is that this passage calls us to have regard for man. So let's look back at verse 3. So first half, uh, first verse 3, it's kind of the context, God's glory. David is astounded by that. But his question in verse 4 is, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So the question that David is kind of dumbfounded by, uh, astonished by, confounded by is, God, you are so glorious and so big, and man is so small, so why would you care for man? Why would you be mindful for man? Why would you even use man to give you praise? Uh, Isn't the creation good enough, cool enough? And the answer we find is actually in verse 5, that God gives dignity to man. God gives dignity to man. So we see in verse 5, yet God, you have made man, him, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Notice the word choices in verse 5. Crowned, glory, honor. Very royal languages. Uh, and so this is just a clear picture of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. So I'm going to come back to the creation of man. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis, the beginning, so the first book of the Bible, Genesis, we see Psalm 8, it's an allusion back to the creation of man. So God is creating, you know, light, he's creating stars, the moon, earth, living things. And then finally in day six, we see the pinnacle of God's creation, man. So I'm going to read from verse 26 to 28 in chapter 1. Genesis. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over a living thing that moves on the earth. So, clearly in verse 26 and 27, God is, they're, they're creating man after his own likeness. So God creates man in his image. Well, what is this image, right? Image of God. It's kind of a fancy language. And it, what basically means that man and woman are like God and represent God. So image of God, the definition, it means that man and woman are like God 
and represent God. So God has placed a special status to man, to woman, right here in Genesis, from the creation of the world, by his word, man has value and dignity because of God bestowing his dignity to man. And to illustrate this point, it's kind of like a king, a ruler, uh, knighting a squire. You know, in this knighting ceremony, uh, the king is bestowing, you know, glory and honor to this squire, to this servant, to be a knight. Gives him an emblem of the kingdom, of the king. Special status that this knight receives. And this is what's kind of happening in Genesis 1 right here and Psalm 8. Uh, that this idea of crowned him with glory and honor is that he, you're, you have dignity. Man has dignity, respect, value. Not because of what man gives, but because God gives that value to man. And so God is mindful and cares for man. Why? Because God gives that value to man. In terms of applications, I think this has huge implications uh, for how we are to live. And I'm going to kind of go um, in concentric circles. So I'm going to start from kind of our immediate surroundings and then to the larger picture of what's going on in the world. So firstly, we ought to regard man because they're made in the image of God. And I think this practically applies to us church um, in how we are to welcome and greet one another. Uh, clearly, if you look around us and you see di- people of different ethnicities, people of different ages, uh, but this teaching in Psalm 8 shows that, no, 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 all, all people we're all have equal value because God gives that. So we ought to greet, welcome one another. And I know that uh, perhaps you might be tempted to think, oh, personality differences or they're so different from me. Um, and maybe my own strangeness has made you feel uncomfortable. But I, I think this text and addresses us that, no, 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 no. Yes, they are different, but they are valued by God. So we, we should teach ourselves and, and remind ourselves that, no, 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 if they are valued by God, I ought to love and care for them and be mindful of them as well. So how do we do this practically? I think practically, you know, once a week or once a month, Already, you know, I hope we're uh, devoting our time to evening service. I hope in that once a month, you would also invite uh, someone that you don't know well or somebody that's different from you, whether that's, um, you know, a difference in age or a difference in kind of a life stage, whether, you know, you're not employed um, or you're a student. So invite somebody who's different from you. Get to know them. You know, ask them, you know, who they are. If they're Christian, you know, ask them their testimony. Um, why? Because they're so valued by God. We ought to be mindful of them and care for them. So uh, when you come to church, I hope you guys, rather than be so comfortable in, oh, like, let me hang in my little clique or my own little friend group. I hope you extend your boundaries knowing that we all are valued by God. Uh, so we ought to reach out to one another. So we ought to reach out to one another because we're so valued by God. I think secondly, a broader step forward, so that's kind of here immediately. A broader step forward is how do we care for our neighbor? How do we care for our neighbor? I think this is a call for us if we understand that every person is valued by God, that we ought to get to be a good neighbor. Uh, 
not to be, uh, you know, knocking on State Farm, but like a good neighbor, I hope that should be all of us. We, that should be all of us. You know, we should ask and seek out how can we help our neighbor? I'm so encouraged by, uh, some of the, um, families here that you guys are reaching out to your neighbors. Uh, for example, you know, this coming, uh, Halloween on the 31st that a, a particular family is wanting to reach their neighbors and get to know them. So they're just, you know, giving out candy and having games at their house in their front yard. I think that's a very practical way of how do we get to know our neighbors so that we could do good to them. Um, and as Christians, you know, we want to do um, spiritual good and evangelize to them. Uh, but I think just very practically, how do we do good to fellow man? Uh, if we understand that they are made in God's image, I think we should go further and get to know them, ask how we could be praying for them, ask how we could be helping them, whether that's a practical thing or a big thing. I think that this text addresses that. Uh, and then thirdly, lastly, uh, a step broader, I think, you know, in the larger picture of America, I think there are certain topics such as abortion, racial, racial reconciliation. And this text actually addresses as a Christian how we are to respond to those issues. Uh, so take, for example, abortion. This passage shows us that we care about life because God cares about life. So we don't care about life just because we want to, but because God cares about life. Why? Because they are crowned with glory and honor. <clears throat> and secondly, too, with racial reconciliation, all men, it doesn't matter if you're 80 years old or eight days in the womb, we're all made in God's image. So we ought to treat one another in that same way. And that, I think, is just a very basic response. Non-Christian or Christian, you are made in the image of God. And that actually should help us to love our neighbor. Large picture globally. And I think just going from, you know, immediate circles to the larger picture, you just see that God values man on woman because they are made in his image. Uh, so with that, we're going to transition to, uh, you know, God bestows his dignity to man. Uh, but we also regard man since God also bestows dominion. So God commands his people to do something. Uh, so when you go to verse 6 in Psalm 8, uh, it says here, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the sea. And I, I hope you're starting to smell that this is, oh, this is back to Genesis. This is the same language and lingo. Dominion, put all things under his feet. That's the same language. So, we're going to kind of go back to Genesis 1 just so that we could clarify, well, what is God's original intention for man? Uh, so in Genesis 1, verse 28, we see that God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So David here in Psalm 8, he's just pointing back to the authority structure that God is authority, has authority over all things. God gives that authority to man to rule over the created things. We see dominion language over the works of whose hands? God's hands. You have put all things under his feet. So God places authority 
to man. And to use that illustration again about the knights uh, and the king, I, I think the knights here, they have a duty to reflect the king, to cultivate the kingdom, to protect the people of the kingdom, to cultivate the land of the kingdom, to guard the boundaries of the kingdom. So as God knights man, you know, gives him glory and honor, the knight has responsibility. Uh, it's not, he, he can't be lazy. He has responsibility and a command to obey. And once again, I think this has implications for ways that man ought to reflect God, uh, knowing that we are commanded by God. Um, and he gives us some of that authority. Uh, so firstly, we're going to just talk broadly about authority structures, right? Practical application, authority structures. Uh, one practical way that we see authority structure is uh, parent-child. Uh, we see parents, you have a God-given responsibility, authority, to cultivate life underneath your care, uh, the children underneath your care. Uh, that is a great privilege for you to reflect God's rulership, His goodness, and how He rules perfectly. And obviously, I think we all know too well that we will fail, uh, but we have a glimpse of that picture that parents, you have that a great honor and privilege to reflect and obey God in cultivating life underneath your care. Uh, perhaps you're a boss and you have employees underneath you. Uh, rather than abusing your authority uh, to get your agenda, so you're using man to, to get your agenda done, we want to build a safe place and culture where those underneath you are empowered that they can do their job and that they could uh, work well because you're using your authority rightly. You're using it well to support and cultivate the giftings and growth of your employees underneath you. So I think those are two just practical applications of authority structures that God has given uh, and that we need to exercise that well. On the, on the sinful side or the negative side of that, uh, you know, uh, take, for example, uh, pornography, right? I think in pornography, we see that the essence of using another person made in God's image, and that person ought to be worshiping God, you're, we're actually dehumanizing that man or woman as an object to fulfill your own desires. <clears throat> and that is sinful and against God. And secondarily, it's sinful against man who God created in his image, and you have a responsibility for that man and woman. So even in pornography, it strips the person of their dignity and responsibility to worship God. So we're not viewing man rightly or woman rightly when we're doing that. So I hope that that helps you in your fight against lust and sin, that you're reminded that, no, no, this person is being in God's image. We have that responsibility to protect man, to cultivate man, rather than abuse man and deface man. Uh, and then thirdly, I think uh, in uh, er the area of anger and using words, uh, James 3, 9, and you don't need to turn there, it actually talks about how we you can use words to curse people made in the likeness of God. We deface man, which actually points to we're defacing God. Whether that's verbal abuse uh, or we're making fun of a coworker, and, uh, I think all those things, we ought to be first to defend fellow man that we should not use our words to destroy 
or abuse or deface or mar, but we should use our words to up, build up, to love, to care for man, to be mindful for man, to have regard for man. And so clearly, uh, that in regards for man, I think we fail in many ways to exercise this dominion, to care about man's dignity. But God, out of his kindness, would send the God-man, namely Jesus. And we see this passage in Psalm 8 actually being fulfilled in Hebrews chapter 2. So turn with me. This is the scripture reading that Oscar uh, read for us today. So if you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to see how this passage in Psalm 8 is fulfilled in Jesus. And there is hope for falling short of God's glory. So Hebrews chapter 2, it's in the New Testament. So we're kind of flipping back and forth. Uh, to get, give us uh, some context of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter, uh, or the main theme of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus. The supremacy of Jesus. That he's over all things, glorious over all things. Uh, in chapter 1, you know, it's, the author is establishing that Jesus is greater than the angels. Uh, in chapter 2, we actually see Jesus in his exaltation as authoritative over all things. And we're going to see that in verse 5 and as we read along. So, uh, turn with me to uh, verse 5. So, draw your attention to verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the author of Hebrews, he's using Psalm 8. He's connecting dots for us, right? He's so helpfully helping us in understanding how this passage points to Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus, right? So in verse 8, we see God has all things in control. Clearly, that we summarize that in Psalm 8. God is all control. And at present, uh, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So basically, that just means that right now, we see the effects of sin, the effects of the fall, and we don't quite see this fully consummated kingdom where Jesus is ruling, where God is ruling over everything perfectly. It's kind of this already but not yet um, aspect. And then verse 9 helps us understand, well, we see him, Jesus, little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So what does that mean, a little while was made lower than the angels? Actually, that actually shows his incarnation, Jesus' incarnation. And again, we see that when it says, crowned with glory and honor. Jesus takes on flesh, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, Jesus takes on flesh to represent man. Clearly, we failed as man. 
But Jesus, as that second Adam, he takes on man. What does he do? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He, he goes to be humiliated, to die on the cross. And that's what Jesus does. Well, what's the reason? Well, in verse uh, 10 in Hebrews 2, it says that to bring many sons to glory. So where a man, Adam, the first Adam, was supposed to image God perfectly, he failed. We too have failed and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus, he perfectly obeyed God, was the representative of man, and he actually can restore that glory for anybody who would repent and believe. And so as Jesus raises from the dead three days later in his exaltation, Jesus will rule and reign perfectly, having all things under subjection to him. So non-Christian friend that you are here with us, we're so glad that you're here, but realize that you have fallen short of this glory. That you have not, you are made in God's image, yes, but because of sin, because of rebellion against God, you are under wrath. So the image of God does not save you, but you are like God and represent God, but you need to repent and believe and trust in Jesus so that you can have right relationship with God, so that that glory in man can be restored in Jesus and trusting in him. So non-Christian friend, I plead with you to repent, believe in Jesus. And, and when we go back to Psalm 8, I, that just helps us understand better clearly, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 9. That's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. That through the gospel, Jesus reigns as king. His name is majestic in all the earth, in all the heavens. That every knee will bow before him because he is so glorious, majestic, excellent because of the person and work of who Jesus is on the cross and in his resurrection. So once again, we see that this psalm calls us to rejoice in God and have regard for man. So with that, let us close in a word of prayer. Father God, we praise you that you are majestic, powerful, glorious, strong, and you are our creator. Man is weak, sinful, but yet you are mindful of man. We confess the ways that uh, we forget that man is made in God's image. We, are forget, we forget that you have bestowed glory upon man, and we are so caught up in ourselves. But we thank you for the blood of Jesus that reconciles us back to man, back to God. And so God, fill our mouths with praises, fill our hearts with great joy, knowing that you forgive and that you restore us back to you by the work of your son, through the uh, application of your spirit's work to us. And so God, help us to remember that you are glorious and that we should regard your people. In Jesus' name we pray.